suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 382. We're back, this time a special episode. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, sometimes, with book reviews and other things, where he pushes back, is Paul from Canberra. How are you, Paul? Greetings from Nanawal country. Pretty well, yourself? I'm well. So... Well, dear listener, normally at this part of the podcast, I say that this is a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion and all the things you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party because we're fearless debaters of dangerous topics. But tonight, dear listener, we're entering the realm of talking about racism and the history of it that's morphing into identity politics and other issues because we're doing a book review of Ken and Malik's book, called Not So Black and White. So if you thought we covered dangerous topics before, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm a bit concerned about this one, Paul. Yes, I I feel like we're going to cover news, politics, sex and religion, definitely, uh, and, you know, racism and more besides on this one. So Mm. definitely. Yeah, I'm going to definitely whip this one straight off of YouTube because I think it'll just send the algorithm crazy when it looks at the transcript. You know, I was, I was preparing my notes for this, Paul, because I, mm. I read the book a few weeks ago and I had some notes and then I was making some more notes this afternoon. I was dictating them into a Word document. And as I was dictating, if I mentioned the word Negro, Word would not write the word and would just do a series of star-type symbols. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I'm not surprised that a voice recognition is just going to quietly edit that one out. Yeah. yeah. So, so that one has had me worried about the prospects of this recording lasting on the YouTube channel. Anyway, we'll see how we go. And if you're in the chat room, say hello and make your comments. So let me just minimise the screen so I can look at my notes. So, Paul, I said I wanted this book not so black and white, and Hmm. one of the reasons I wanted it, because it talks about race and identity, and I think this is a good background warm-up for subsequent discussions about the voice and Indigenous Hmm. rights. Hmm. And so I don't know about you, but as I was reading it, I was constantly referring back to that issue and the Australian experience about race and and how we think about race in this country in the context yeah. of the voice. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, because the book talks about, like there's a lot of discussion about the US experience of racism and how these issues have play, played out. But it's, you know, there's obviously quite a bit different to how 
Australia has experienced that. I was really kind of interested in your where you saw those contrasts and where and similarities. Mm, it is. You're right. There was a fair bit of the African American experience, and really not much about the Native American Indian experience mm. in the book. Uh, Ken and Malik actually. I tried to find a pronunciation for him. Some places they say Kenan Malik, some places Kenan Malik, so I'm just not exactly sure what to do. But Kenan Malik mm. himself was a Pakistani sort of ethnicity who grew up in the UK. Mm. So, but you're right, there is a fair amount of reference to sort of the black American experience which doesn't have the land rights issue attached to it like it does for Native Americans or Indigenous Australians. So that yeah. was sort of left out of the book that, although property does come into it, which we'll get to, property rights. Hmm. There was mention hmm. of it. Hmm. Because I think there was also a quote in there from Abraham Lincoln who imagined that, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but the 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 idea that the, the logical result of the emancipation of the slaves was they would just go back to Africa and colonize some bit of Africa. Really? Wasn't used in in there. Did you? I didn't remember that quote, but it doesn't surprise me. Some of the founding fathers of the constitution and then, and sort of leaders from previous eras had some fairly, uh, well, racist ideas or notions or things which were common for the time but would be outlandish yeah. today. And, and I, because I think that what, like one of the themes that I saw through the book was that question of integration versus assimilation versus separation, the different, ideas about whether it was even possible for races to live beside each other. And I'm just wondering what what you sort of thought out of, you know, what you got out of that and where, how you sort of see that issue. You know, by the end of it, by the end of the book, he was saying, for example, the guy who came up with critical race theory was quite despairing about the prospects of ever getting rid of racism. And and they were really saying that if you took that view that racism could never be abolished, then you ended up – actually, maybe I can find that little bit where, where it talks about you, – you end up just going for performative results because you've given up on substantive stuff. So you look for – numbers of Indigenous people in positions of power and you look for window dressing as opposed to substantive things because you've given up on the substantive things. It was, it was kind mm. of one of the arguments mm. there. So I'll just give a little intro. So, so the book purports to be The History of Race from White Supremacy to Identity Politics and I think it does achieve that. Mm. It certainly runs through a history and I think that's important, Paul, to look at how these things evolve mm. is really important when you're trying to answer modern-day questions. And 
we could look at that in terms of some other topics we've been talking about. Like if you're looking at Russia and Ukraine, for example, and trying to come to a decision about what's going on there and who's right and who's wrong, hmm. you have to understand the creation of NATO and what has been happening over the last 50 to 70 years in relation to NATO and, and the changes that have happened there. And you have to look at what's yeah, happened yeah. with Ukrainian politics and American interference. And you just can't look at the last two years and and give a comprehensive, have a comprehensive understanding of of the issue without that sort of background history and context to put it all in. Same with, yeah. you know, the current, uh, you know, conflict well, beat up conflict with China and the Chinese response is going to be so much heavier that they're not going to be dominated by anybody because they had 100 years of that and they're not going to do it anymore. That's a really big thing to know about Chinese mentality in that one. If you just examined the people and players of today without taking that into account, you'd be losing context. And yeah. um, even and- things like interest rates in the economy, like our current the low interest rates that we experienced until very recently, that's all a function of what's happened in since the Great Depression in a, in a series of events. And to get to those low interest yeah. rates, you really had to appreciate all these things. So my point yeah, is it's yeah. good to have this background to understand where we're at. And, and, I mean, that's a good example as well. Like you've given a couple of really good examples there of how the politics in a situation and how that that sort of is portrayed in the media i mean you know the the china issue being a classic example for the people that only read the sydney morning herald and trust that to get their news from or you know only watch nine they're probably looking at you know, thinking, well, it's perfectly obvious that China needs to be restrained here. If you're not looking at the history and the wider politics of it. Mm. So I guess here, especially with the sort of that issue of identity politics in the book, do you think that is a kind of recent thing that misunderstands the past? I think people have a really shallow understanding of where we're at in terms of racism and identity politics, really shallow. Hmm. I have been looking at the commentary on The Voice because I've wanted to, when I eventually do this episode, you know, quote people who are for The Voice, quote people who are against The Voice, discuss Hmm. the ideas. And I find that the arguments on both sides are incredibly shallow and really the people or the voice tend to be both sides invariably shallow. No talk of class. I have not seen a single modern commentator talking about class. You know, I'm banging on about class as mm. as an mm. issue. Nobody mm. has mentioned it. And but when you look at this book, and you look at the players involved from Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, various other people who I hadn't heard of before, Franz Fanon. Amarima Baraka, a whole host of important characters who were big in the Black Panther movement and Black mm. Power and all that sort of stuff talked a lot about class. 
And yes. none of that is spoken about in this contemporary discussion about Indigenous matters that I've seen. Because I tell you, I would have highlighted it and stuck it in my notes if I'd have seen it. So I think the conversation is very shallow. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that because I heard Noel Pearson's Boyer lectures recently, mm. which were about the voice, and very interesting to hear the approach that he's taking, which in part is like a kind of, it's a bad summary, but I I would say that his view comes from the idea of the bringing back respect for the Aboriginal people and the Aboriginal culture in ways that he believes has been sort of systematically removed. But also it, there's one where he taught, one Boyer lecture where he talks about aiming for full employment and mm -hmm. I have a bunch of problems with the idea of full employment, but the interesting thing there is he, he talks about not just full employment for Aboriginal people, but full employment for everyone that wants a job, whether they're, you know, white or black, immigrant or native, you know, anything. And that to me seems to be about the class struggle of the working class versus the the employer class much more than it is about race. Would you sort well, of... Well, it is, and I would have thought this whole voice discussion would have been a distraction from that issue. I don't know how you would have tied in promoting the voice as being anything to do with that topic. I don't know how he could have brought the two in together. I'd have to re-listen to the... <laughs> Yeah, episode two. How yeah, we could have segued those, those two together? together. I have um, no idea. But I, I, th the other aspect which I saw in the book there, I mean, there's a whole sort of chapter on the the class, both sort of the the working class and their. There's that sort of contrast between the the basket of deplorables and the, the the coastal elites and that how did how did that class struggle there flow into the racism that Kennan talks about in the book? Well Kennan makes the point that you never hear the expression the black working class. You never hear the Muslim working class. Working class is is for whites. And in, in mm. discussion, the, the black ethnic groupings are discussed as if there is no class distinction amongst them. That's what infuriates me. This idea that they are all the same, they all think the same, mm. there is no mm. class difference, mm. that they're all suffering the same, it, it frustrates the hell out of me. So, yeah, yeah. So... I, th I think there's a lack of recognition of that. And I give the same example regularly of, you know, the Jonathan Thurston's of the world not needing extra privileges or powers because he's got way more than what he should have. The guy was responsible for a football stadium in, in Townsville 
that even yeah. people in Townsville didn't want. They said, we don't need that. We've already right. got a stadium that's big enough. So, yeah, he's uh, got a voice. Don't worry about that. Yeah, but I guess I also wondered there, like I felt another theme in that struggle was, I can't remember who said it particularly, but the the idea that the the white working class were played off against the African-American working class, mm. as in, you know, the the white people need to be, the white working class need to be afraid of the African-Americans because they'll take your jobs kind yes. of stuff. Yeah. And that sort of fed into some of that racism. Did you... Where, how did you see that playing out in the book? Mm, I didn't see that emphasised in the book. In terms of the white working class, historically I thought it was very interesting when he was talking about indentured servants in America. So hmm. what he was saying at around page 65 actually was when the first Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619, there were no white people there. They were English and their children were English. Whiteness as an identity, just like race, had to be constructed. So the people at that time didn't consider themselves white. They thought themselves as English. And uh, that was in mm. 1619. And then by the end of the 17th century, American plantations were worked mainly by African slave labour. But in the initial decades, there was a large European indentured servant work working there. And basically... The servants were cheaper than slaves and could be worked as hard. Slaves were slaves for life, so could not be compelled to work harder by threats of extended enchainment. So, so yeah, there was actually in the early days quite a large body of white indentured servants who would get beaten and treated just as badly as the black slaves Mm. in the initial sort of creation of the United States. So... Yeah, and he he makes the point that just historically with slavery, it wasn't a a race issue, and, and that race actually itself didn't come about until a more modern. It's a more modern construction. Race people were defined by their community, their laws, their culture, where they lived, rather than by the colour of their skin. In sort of pre-modern times was his argument. Mm. He gives different references to this and, Mm. you know, black people had black slaves, white people had white slaves and a variety of slaves and they were just poor unfortunates in the community who were in the slave class, no matter that they had the same colour. The colour didn't come into it. And and I guess I I was thinking as well because I've read a series of historical fiction set in ancient Rome where, of course, slavery was perfectly standard and, you know, there was just a slave class and if you're, you know, you could free your slaves if you're, you know, decided to in your will, but, and, you know, they were to be traded and sold and and you could be, you, you know, you could be brought to punishment if you killed a slave, but only if it was someone else's slave, because that would be destruction of property. Mm. And no one particularly talks about those slaves being, you know, 
African or from the captured Germanic tribes or anything other than just some of them are better slaves than others. <laughs> yes, it was a completely colourblind situation. Yeah. So so slavery didn't arise because of, of colour. It arose simply because of that's where they managed to buy the cheap labour from. If they'd have been white cheap labour in Africa, they would have done the same thing. And um, But what his yeah. argument is in this book is that you had the Enlightenment and you had these theories of universality and the equality of rights of men, but you had at the same time people preaching equality but then practising slavery. Yeah, and, yeah. and the argument in the book is that eventually what came about was race became an excuse as to why these people weren't treated equally. And yeah. it, was, it was an excuse to soothe the, the, the and comfort the people who knew that they were in breach of a new moral code, but it was they still wanted them, the money and the cheap labour and weren't yeah. Yeah. prepared I to mean, live it, up to the practice that they were preaching. Yeah, it it's that sort of grand irony that I think starts out in Chapter 1, talking about the Declaration of Independence, which literally starts, you know, we believe that all men are created equal, and yet this was already a slave-owning colony and was, you know, it, it, even after the, the War of Independence would be continuing slavery for quite some time. So it wasn't an idea that we're fighting for equality of all of the people, right? Mm. Um, yes. Do you, do you ever think we'll we'll be able to actually, you know, see all men created equal, or is that always going to kind of be ironic now? Ah, <laughs> oh, do you know? Like, look at Australia; it becomes a melting pot, really, of, mm. of people eventually. People within a few generations have intermixed and, you know, there was there was angst and racism against the Greeks and Italians mm. and mm. then it was the Vietnamese mm. and... Boat people. And I think we can say with some confidence that in Australian society today, those groups have well and truly integrated and are not suffering from a racist sort of situation i mean yes and no i i agree with your original sort of thesis in that that racism takes a lot of time to to would would take a lot of time to stamp out because it is easy as a point of difference and all it needs is something like you know covid coming out of china and all of a sudden, Chinese people are being treated with suspicion, almost exactly like you know they were on the goldfields. Yeah, but give it long enough, and everyone will have a bit of Chinese heritage in their family somewhere. In the same yeah, way that yeah. you know people ended up having a gay nephew or a or a lesbian niece or something, and suddenly their attitudes towards gay rights changed, and and you know it was such a melting pot here that mm. eventually, give it long enough. If people will be mixed up enough that these distinctions will 
just disappear. It'll take a while. So to answer your question, yeah. yes, when there is a, a, such a mix-up of people that we've forgotten that we're ever different. Which, which is an interesting point because I, yeah, I think of then on the other hand of people like Andrew Bolt who kind of want some kind of metric by which Aboriginal people have some have their sort of Aboriginality measured, and mm. you know, there are, there's a lot of debate in Tasmania about land claims and cultural heritage from Tasmanian Aborigines who allegedly were completely massacred, except for the fact that many of them had married into white or you know, been married into white families and became part of the the culture there. So I guess I I wonder there But he's not alone. Yeah. There are people within the indigenous community who would say the same thing. Mm. Because, mm. you know, GST and other monies gets distributed to the states on a formula that increases that amount to states with the larger proportion of indigenous people. Mm. And what's been happening is that the indigenous Population has been growing rapidly in New South Wales and the ACT and mm. other areas, with funding therefore going to those states. And Indigenous leaders saying, Well, hang on, we really need that funding going to the Northern Territory. It's been drained away because of, of so many people now identifying as Indigenous in these states, which gets back sorry. to the, the yeah, issue sorry. that it's. it's which gets back to the issue that it really is about are these people suffering or not? And Indigenous people are leaders in that situation by implication are saying there are Indigenous people here in these states who are living in urban populations who don't need it as much as some others do living in mm, other states mm, in remote mm. areas. One, and, and one particular bugbear of mine is the remote Indigenous communities who are often not supplied with you know, reticulated power, so they have to run diesel generators, mm. which also put out fumes and cost a lot of money to run, and that's all taken away from the money going into the community because, you know, that's a, it's treated as a cost and we should just be installing solar panels and batteries and having done with it. But anyway, that's another, that's another issue. Mm. Um, I guess the, the hard part here... And I'm wondering whether this feeds into the sort of identity part of identity politics is that the how you see the book talk about racial identities that we now have and how like how how does Ken and Malik sort of resolve that question of the you know if if race is an invented construct then why do why are people identifying? Yeah, why? why are they? So I guess he makes the point. Yeah, what? Why are they? Why? Why have they abandoned class in favour of identity? Because you can be a a solidarity around the issues of class, and or you could be a. a solidarity around the issues of gender, race, ethnicity and things like this. And people, I guess, looked at the, the black power 
Black Panther, Black Rights movement in the United States, which was seen in some ways as successful and used as a template by other ethnic gender groups Hmm, hmm. as a way of getting things done. And even in the UK you would get sort of ethnic groups agitating for things Hmm. revolving around the local imam or other religious institutions would become powerful. Even even like there's a couple of anecdotes that Kennan has in the introduction talking about Indian female workers in factories or like the Pakistan League or I can't remember a couple of the names Mm. which, which were about almost unionizing along that the lines of we are you know a racial group that's being taken advantage of just mm. as much as we are a class right mm. i think people saw success in that black movement and therefore and it's it's kind of easy because they couldn't imagine in america for example taking on capitalism which was, you know, if you were looking at workers' rights and and unionism and 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 the solidarity of the working class, it was just getting battered relentlessly and indoctrinated in a propaganda program where every American began to think they were just a temporarily unlucky millionaire whose time yeah. had come. And so so he makes, I think, the point that People looked at the success of the the black movement, which under Malcolm X, for example, hmm. was very much black people have got to do this for themselves to gain power. Don't turn the other cheek. Violence is acceptable and necessary, etc. But hmm. he also made some really interesting points that Malcolm X, in particular, towards the end of his life, had travelled. He had left the Nation of Islam and had converted to Sunni Islam, travelled to Saudi Arabia and did a lot of travel in Africa and came across a lot of white people who were of the strong belief that racism was a terrible thing and needed to be overcome Mm. and were very friendly towards him and they were white and he hadn't seen it before and he began to see that he'd made a mistake in not embracing white people into his cause and to fighting against them. And Mm. just one paragraph I'll read here. Yeah, yeah. After his travels, it made him rethink his ideas about race. He met revolutionaries who were not black but were as hostile to racism as he was. Malcolm realised that he was alienating the people who were true revolutionaries. And John Lewis, the chair of SNCC, I don't know what that is, but recalled a conversation in which Malcolm X talked about the need to shift our focus from race to class. He said that was the root of our problems, not just in America but all over the world. Unfortunately, in the decades following his murder, it was the old Malcolm rather than the one he was becoming that got got fixed as the real Malcolm X. And just in terms of Martin Luther King on this topic... Martin Luther King recognised too that equality meant more than simple civil and political rights. What does it profit a man, he asked, to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter 
if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee. Hmm. So he launched a poor people's campaign telling a reporter we're dealing with class issues. So people hmm. might think of Malcolm X especially and Martin Luther King as being fixated on the black race, but in fact by the end of it they had recognised it was a class issue. Hmm. Nobody talks about that. This is one of the most valuable things to come. I had heard bits of these things in other articles, but it's one of the more valuable things to come out of this book is is some of the reflections he's got on black leaders like that. And I'll give you one more, which was good actually in that this introduced me to some black leaders I hadn't heard of. Amira Baraka, poet and critic, founder of the Black Arts Movement. Baraka shed his nationalism for Marxism. In the 1970s, he recognised the dangers of appropriating racial thinking even for the cause of equal rights. Hmm. He recognised too the importance of class in any struggle for equality. He came to realise that simply having black faces in positions of power did little to combat racism or empower working class blacks. And there was one other character, Franz Fanon, rejected the... uh, idea of a singular black identity. That's a slightly different topic. So, Mm, yeah, mm, in terms of mm. class, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Amira, Baraka, in discussions when I talk to people and I say I'm more interested in the class than race, I'm actually from the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King and Amira Baraka School of Race Relations. Yeah, yeah. Don't call me a racist. I I mean, this is... I guess where I think some of that, the critical race theory that I've understand understood comes from is in the intersectionality between race and class that the and gender and other attributes, you know, the the black working woman suffers all of the sort of intersections of those problems, mm. not just one of them in isolation. And thank you to Event Horizon for saying the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Is the that, SNCC. Thank you. Yeah, yes. yeah. That that whole point about the, like, you know, I felt very strongly with that discussion about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King you know, very interesting that they only met once. Mm. They basically sort of shook hands, went on their way. Ships in the night. Yeah, yeah. That, mm. you know, it's interesting. In part because I think Luther King preached a lot more, not tolerance of racism, but that hating the other person wasn't the solution. And I always, I feel very strongly that, you know, that saying that he had that hate cannot drive out hate and only love can do that is, you know, it's vital to remember when we've got so many causes that we're invited to hate. Mm. But also, on the other hand, the point that they make in the book was, is that Malcolm X was also saying but we can't keep relying on the white people to take our side we actually have to fight the forces that 
are trying to put us back in their place. And those those are some white people too. Mm. So I'm I'm interested where you see the sort of the violence in that, you know, peace versus love versus hate, peace versus violence in the 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 whole sort of history in the book. What? How yeah. did you see that theme play out? I didn't see a lot of it other than in the Malcolm X sort of scenario. And I don't know. I mean, while he turned towards concentrating on class at the end, I don't know whether he was quite happy for the lower class to be violent against the upper class. I don't know. I didn't mm. Uh, mm. It didn't go into that. It's quite possible he was still happy to rely on violence mm. but use it in a, in a class-based scenario rather than black versus white scenario. So, mm. yeah, I didn't see much other sort of reference to to violence as such, but just on the critical race theory and the intersectionality and all that, mm. uh, Ken and Malik's obviously critical of it and he talks of people in that critical race theory movement, I think, as trying to find racism wherever they can, almost like somebody who's got a hammer, everything mm. they see is a nail. And he was saying that, you know, the concept of white privilege, a lot of the people in that movement were willing to ascribe white privilege to all whites and were right. in that sense equating uh, both Elon Musk and the cleaner in the Elon and the in the Tesla factory, both were enjoying white privilege in a very simplistic manner yeah, in the critical yeah. race theory movement, finding racism where they could. And he gave an interesting section on mass incarceration in the United States. Hmm. And so I'll read a little bit about that. He says that Mass incarceration would seem to be the classic illustration of many of the themes at the heart of critical race theory. A black man born in the late 1960s who dropped out of high school, then he's sort of offering some alternative thinking here. A black man born in the 1960s who dropped out of high school has a 59% chance of going to prison in his lifetime, whereas a black man who attended college is only a 5% chance. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't seen statistics based on on that before, or maybe I had, but it's a good point to make. That's a big difference, a 59% chance versus a 5% chance, both black, one has gone to college and one hasn't. Hmm. And he says, he quotes an analysis by this guy, Nathaniel Lewis, for the People's Project think tank, concluding that race is not a statistically significant factor for many incarceration outcomes once class is adequately controlled for. And what he's saying is what's risen dramatically since the 70s is the incarceration rate amongst high school dropouts, mm. while the rate amongst mm. college graduates, whether they're black or white, has declined. And, uh, and I'm, uh, just one sorry, more statistic. Okay. Okay. 2017, Clegg and Guzman suggest a white high school dropout was about 15 times more likely to be in prison than a black college graduate. Hmm. So, of course, the argument is, well, who's most likely to be a college graduate is perhaps a white person. But Yeah, that, if, if you that feels to me to have – I can't remember the, 
statistical fallacy, but if you're comparing mm. very different s- selection sizes, mm. then the proportions or the percentages or the absolute numbers are going to look quite different. But either True. way, it's still, you know, I, I think this gets to your point about class being a, thank you, uh, it is the base rate fallacy. Thank you, Joe. The class is it gets to your point about class being a much more differentiating factor because things like education and di- did you complete high school, you know, what kind of family did you grow up in, things like mm-hmm. that have as a lot of effect on your class, whether you were black or white, right? Yep. So Malik doesn't Indian deny or... that race is a factor, but he's saying there are other factors that need yeah. to be taken into account and and it, it, it shouldn't be simplified. There's complex relationships going on here between mm. race and education and, and other factors at play. So I had yeah. a look at some local statistics, Paul, on incarceration and education. That found this in doesn't the surprise Aust- me, Trevor. <laughs> Australian Institute Health Welfare report of some sort. So... Big report, somewhere at page 256. I got that far into it. (laughs) In Australia, of prisoners, 1% have a bachelor degree, 4% have a diploma, 31% have a trade certificate, 56% have no non-school qualifications. Mm. Mm. Only 19% of the prison population finished year 12. Wow. The, and, and the interesting sort of anecdote that I've seen on this as well is that the if you look at the incarceration rates in Tasmania, where there is a higher proportion of a high school dropout rate, then it is, it is higher than states that, don't have as uh, you know, don't same have that right, same education yeah. standard, yep. But also, that the population, as we know from what we said before about you know, from Tasmania, is that the population of the Aboriginal people is very, very low compared to other jurisdictions. So, I do think that it, it, it you know, it's a, a big factor. So I'll just I give some I'm, other statistics. Yeah. Just, well, I was um, just wondering yep. there if – do you think that's something that Ken and Malik is kind of overlooking the the – because it, you sort of said before he's he didn't really look at race in English politics or in – and, you know, we know that from India and Pakistan, there are different races as well. There are different racial groups. It, it felt to me like he didn't really address race racism in other contexts. And, and so it's because you've got this quite clear differentiation of, of skin colours in the US, then it, it became a lot easier to just compare and contrast that example and he was he just missed out on some of the subtlety do you do you feel like that 
feel Look, like I've I asked this question the wrong way around. I think it was fair enough to concentrate on the US because he probably wants to sell books in the US. There's obviously excellent True. statistics on this that are available. He's, we're all familiar with the figures of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. There's, you know, there's a size and a richness to the whole story there that I think it was an appropriate place to, to, to deal with. I hmm. don't, you know, the book would just get enormous if you were going to enter into other jurisdictions and start talking about, you know, like I would hmm. be interested, for example, in race and Indigenous issues in South America where yes. I don't tend to hear of Indigenous lands rights issues in South America, even though I've got a keen interest in South America and it would pique my interest if I heard something. There's definitely, so, I've definitely heard like the Yanomamo mm-hmm. and other native Brazil, you know, native tribes in Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yep. basically pushing against the the sort of slash and burn farming of the Amazon. Yeah. It, it's such a large mixed population where nearly everyone has got a bit of native blood in them. They're very mixed races there, I think. But I get yeah. off, we're getting off topic there because I don't have enough detail on it. But just yeah, I, don't, I don't blame Malik for concentrating on America. And I think, you know, what he does say about this incarceration is it's a complex relationship. And he says that the savagery of mass incarceration in America reveals the complex relationship between race and class. To suggest that is not to deny racism or to fall into the trap of class reductionism, as some have claimed. It's simply not to wish away the complexities of the world. So I think he's just saying, Mm. and I think his criticism is of many of the players in the critical race theory movement finding racism as the answer to everything and white privilege being abundant no matter what the class is of the white person. So that's what he was sort of saying there. But just to finish some statistics, because locally in Australia, Indigenous people, 29% of the prison population, even though they're 3 point something percent, 3.3 of the general population. The other thing, of course, is prison population, 90% are male. Males only make up 50% of the population. So Hmm. there's a strong bias against males in prison. Do we ever hear of special programs to specially designed to keep men out of prison, Paul? We, Maybe they we, do. We, we, we did, but the coalition cut them all. Okay. And adults without a degree, adults without a degree are 72% of the general population, but 99% of the prison population. Hmm. So it'd be mm. simplistic to say, well, make sure everyone's got a degree and they won't end up in, you know, the <laughs> end up in jail or some I, higher qualification or not male. That'll reduce I, it by 50%. You know. Well, I'm also, it shows there's factors yeah. involved that are complex. Mm. I'm also kind of reminded of the Terry Pratchett quote that, you know, living in, living in a slum was sort of almost borderline criminal because it was just so hard to make an existence any other way but criminality but if you owned a slum you'd got all you got was invited to the best parties right and and uh, where's this from from a book in terry pratchett 
fairly sure it was it's one of the guards series the vime mm. series but anyway the the thing i'm thinking about here is the number of case, cases of high profile well educated people going to the courts and then being given lenient sentences because you know it might hurt their career in future whereas people who don't have the education mm. and i'm just i'm kind of trying to skip over race here but the the, the lower classes well they just we we've got to throw the book at them yeah and so i'm really I wonder here if part of the reason we don't you know, another reason that that statistic is as high for you know, not jailing people with degrees is that judges with degrees also favor you know allowing people you know people who look like them with degrees from going through you know worse Poss- sentencing possibly. Yes, all sorts of inherent biases are mm. at play, no doubt, no doubt. So there's one other aspect that he touched on in this book that I just wanted to go yeah. to in case you weren't going to, and this was about property. Mm. And so Adam Smith, famous economist, invisible mm. hand, the needs of property for him compelled restrictions on equality because we had at this time these notions of universal rights of of men that were all equal and we had the practice where they weren't Hmm. and in fact the people who had wealth and power were not really wanting to share it if they possibly could get away with it so adam smith strangely unlike today hmm, adam smith helped (laughs) them out by saying that the needs of property compelled restrictions on equality but jean jacques rousseau Hmm. um Rousseau. Demanded um, the needs of equality, demanded restrictions on property rights. And he said, The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, thought of saying, This is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. How many crimes, wars, and murders, how much misery and horror the human race would have been spared. If someone had pulled up the stakes and filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, beware of listening to this imposter. You are lost <laughs> if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to everyone and the earth itself belongs to no one. So hmm. that was Rousseau. And then the Scottish jurist George Wallace was unequivocal in his condemnation of slavery and his anti-slavery radicalism came more easily to him because of his Unusual lack of respect for private property. Property, that bane of human felicity, Wallace wrote, must necessarily be banished out of the world before a utopia can be established. So we had the theory of universality with the Enlightenment. We had the practice not living up to it. We had intellectuals like Adam Smith justifying inequality, the needs of property and capitalism, but we had others who were ready to go the whole hog on equality, hmm. often because they had no respect for private ownership of property. Hmm. And I find the property argument interesting because one of my problems with the voice debate is 
a lot of the commentary is that Indigenous people have been here for 40,000 years. And it's really an argument of, well, from their point of view, we were here first, so it's ours. Hmm. And that's seen as a good argument. And I don't like the argument of we were here first. I don't think it's a good argument in the same way that, yeah, I think it's a very, very Mm. poor argument and it seems to be accepted as a good one. And people like Rousseau and George Wallace would say it's not a good argument for anyone to claim property in a special way. But then you'd agree with the pervasive idea across Aboriginal cultures that they belong to the land and it is not the other way around. The this the you know the the land, the places belongs to no one and people existed on it. I don't know that all Indigenous people accept that way of thinking about land rights. I would would you say a majority mm. did? I'd have to look closely at the wording of the Marika Makarata statement and others, hmm. but because to me, I think it's an important to distinction between the sort of the the history of we were here first hmm. versus the 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 colonial property rights argument about here we were here first. You know the 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 only way that the colonists were essentially able to justify themselves was by de- just deciding that there was no prior owner because at that point as you say you know Rousseau says someone had enclosed a plot of land and said well this is mine and you people should keep off it because i want it for myself mm. i see that as a different form of being there to the Aboriginal idea of simply being a part of the land, land being part of its history, mm. being attached to it. But, but you know, let, let me read some of the comments I've been hearing. Hmm. So, Cosmos Samaris, Greek commentator. Whether you're a Greek-born Australian, an Indian migrant Australian, a young Arabic Australian, we all have two homes, the one that houses us and the one which we identify as our ancestral home. Most of us are in this country because of some form of dispossession, be it economic, cultural, religious or political. The land that has given us this incredible second chance belongs to a 40,000-year-old culture. We respect their deep ancestral history and want to thank them for it. So... Mm belongs to a culture, and someone like Paul Bongiorno, you would have heard of him, Hmm. can we get it? The primary motivator for the voice is recognition of the injustice. Meted out to those who are bloodily dispossessed the land they owned for 60,000 years. Still both people coming from the Western ownership of property point of view. And this is the advocates for the voice. This is just giving you the counter that I'll... uh, um, it seems a traditional notion of ownership you, is creeping into this look, in, in a type of a type of special property rights that was being envisioned by Rousseau in that it was certainly unequal in that sense. So yeah. I guess I'm making the point and I guess for people who are interested in this topic, buy Malik's book and read that section of what 
Adam Smith and Rousseau and, uh, and who was the other commentator? George Wallace had to say they were very anti-private property hmm. as part of their push for equality and anti-racism. Hmm. Because the thing that really resonated to me when I was sort of reading through that was the the modern sort of I couldn't help but feel like the modern descendant of that is the prosperity gospel. The idea that the, you know the from coming from Adams that sort of you know the the value of the property that I own implies a curtailment of the the freedoms but and and therefore I should be allowed to acquire more of it morphing into the kind of acquiring property is good and hard work and you know diligent labor can achieve that of the sort of protestantism and then into the well, well they're both own, justifications for an, an unequal result one relying yeah. on god and the other one relying on a better overall economy um, yeah did did, so, did you feel there was a sort of a a progression at all in that no i see them as just relying on two different convenient rationalizations for okay. doing what you want to do and yeah. and finding yeah. an uncomfortable result and going oh how will i explain this oh god or well it's worthwhile trickle down everyone benefits in the end it'll work out for all of us yeah i see yeah. them as two different sort of reasons for what doing what you want to do the, what, one of the things that I did want to want to ask you about, which we kind of touched on earlier, and I was hoping to get back to, was in sort of talking about violence. One of the things that you know he that Malik ends with the Christchurch mosque attack and other similar attacks, and you know it really made me think that terrorism is a force used to you know it also like the, the those people are committing acts of of terror in part to be able to say we've pushed back against them right and the link lynchings and other you know beatings of slaves that tried to run away and so forth and it you know seemed to me also to be a form of terrorism you know it is a you don't dare speak out or vote or do you know keep the the rights that you should have because we'll you know we'll kill you if you do did Honestly, you, did didn't you... see much. I didn't really see much reference to violence in this. I didn't. I didn't really read much talk about the different groups resorting to violence as such. So, okay, no, I didn't sort of no. pick that up in in the discussion about the Christchurch. 
I can't remember that you know, in the book, to tell you the truth. Okay. I can't remember the Christchurch. Yeah. I might have um, right, right skipped in the In the end of the 10th chapter, right. talking about, because you know, there's sort of discussion of the the white identity mm. that kind of emerges out of a reaction against the ah, yes. black identity yes. and those that then comes into all of the stupid conspiracy theories that mean that we have to, you know, white people need to fight back, which yeah. is just another form of terrorism. Yeah, I kind of skipped over that chapter in my summary notes here where he yeah. talks about <laughs> the emergence of 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 white identity as a reaction to certain events. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately I don't really have much notes on that. So, yeah, he does he does talk about that emergence of a white identity as a reactionary hmm. thing. Okay. One, you know, I, I guess the key thing, and we can sort of in the next five to ten minutes or 15 or whatever just sort of wrap it up, but the I think the key thing that I enjoyed in it is – people's misguided priorities and mm. on black lives matter here he says many who have taken up the black lives matter banner like many within the race consciousness movements it historically follows conflate the necessity of challenging racism with the building of racial solidarity pursuing the second makes achieving the first more difficult even within America, there is no single identity or set of interests that bind together all black people and only black people, still less all people of colour. To assume that there is only reinforces the power of the black elites and diminishes the voices of black workers, making it more difficult to tackle the problems facing those at the sharp end of racism. So, I, and that's sort of part of the byline of this of this book, where did I write in the notes, was, yeah, it was that the more we despise racial thinking, the more we cling to it. And people are... Mm, how do you mean? Uh, people are objecting to racism by coalescing around race and using that as their tool to fight racism, whereas they should be embracing an entire community. Martin Luther King was getting white people to his marches as much yeah, as black yeah. people. Yeah, which yeah. Which is his traditional thought in opposition to Malcolm X. And he was getting this, – this is an ideological thing that we should all embrace and it's actually harmful to the cause to make it a race-based fight. And I think that's a trap that people are falling into, conflating the necessity of challenging racism with the building of racial solidarity. It should be, it should be broader than that, I think. Mm. How does that, like, I feel like there's an intersection there to the class argument. There is. Because it should be, it should be more about where is the suffering? Where hmm. is the harm? Where's the hurt? And where's the disadvantage? And that should be colour blind. And hmm. let's all look and try and address that as as what the priority is. I 
I mean, I guess I I have a slightly different take on that, but I, I'm happy to put that aside to another day. I, I think that I agree with you that, you know, it, it the, and the interesting thing about your formulation there is that you didn't need to say which class we were going to deal with or help. You just said we need to identify the people that need our help. Mm. It's evidently not the millionaires, right? Well, Paul, we spoke about changes to superannuation laws that people mm. with over a certain three millions million dollars. Of, millions of money in dollars in super would lose their percentage of a tax concession. I put it to you under critical race theory that that unfairly disadvantaged white elderly males and we went, well, that's okay because they need a bit of disadvantaging added into the pot. You know, it was a that, – that would have had a – Yeah. That I, unfair, I feel like that you're... Had a, an unfair effect on a small ethnic – on a particular ethnic and gender and age group. But we were right. like, okay, that's all right. In some times, discrimination is okay. Privilege away from people who have it, rather than, rather than removing something else from the people that don't have it. It's, I, I guess my point is that we we're prepared to discriminate and disadvantage, you know, take away these advantages where we see it's obviously the right thing to do, and it's about. The colour doesn't come into it, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on this and, same point. And I was I was going yeah. to sort of also touch on that idea because you touched on it before that, you know, there are, is it Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court justice in the US, who's an African-American man and, you mm. know, quite happily, you know, an arch-conservative and, you know, voting against seems to be voting against the very same sex sorry the very racial marriage act that allows him to be married to his wife it's hard to you know uh, i can kind of imagine a whole class of working white poor in the us that can hate him equally because he's rich and you know well educated He's a classic example of, you know, just having representation isn't going to change things yeah. for, for people of colour, for example. So more and more we're seeing people from minority groups getting into position of power and screwing over, you know, if, if they happen to be a Tory conservative, they'll happily screw over a poor yeah, yeah. working class a, a certain... um, a certain um, senator from the Northern Territory right? yeah. <laughs> might be involved yeah. in this. Exactly. So it, just on this sort of idea as well, page 262, he says, the inward-looking binding politics of identity and the outward-looking bridging politics of solidarity, the former mobilises by emphasising shared membership of a particular identity, be that gender, sexuality, race or name. Nation. The politics of solidarity also stresses the collective endeavour, but views commonality as emerging not from particular identities, but out of the shared set of values and beliefs and the struggles to win acceptance for those values and beliefs. So that's a good hmm. description of the difference between 
the politics of identity and the politics of class solidarity, but that's Mm. what he's saying. I think it's well put and I know which I prefer. It's, It's hard though to see exactly where those differences are sometimes. It's easy. You think so? People who talk about race and identity and my people never talk about class. It's easy to see. It's easy. They spot them a mile away. Spot them a mile away. What what I guess I'm thinking of there is that the talking about the identity is often an, an identity which involves those shared values, those common Increasingly it doesn't. Increasingly identity is these fixed notions of fixed characteristics of your gender, your sexuality, your your race, your colour, and Mm. and not your ideological belief. It's, It's rare for people to say, come on, we're all communists, let's band together under this ideological banner that we've all decided to adopt as a as a as a theory of living. Yeah. These people yeah. are adopting solidarity because of of fixed characteristics. And it's not healthy for them or mm. for us. And I'm kind of reminded of that meme that goes around with various captions of sort of our two workers, you know, white and a black you know, man sort of with hands locked together in solidarity. They're not sort of fighting each other. They're, you know, helping each other, giving each other strength. And, you know, you'd think that it would be easy to say, you know, workers unite, you know, poor people unite, but we keep on being divided off into, you know, single mums and, you know, working you know, single parents and the it's elderly and so divide and Divide and conquer. It's, hmm. it's, you know, the oligarchs and the powerful don't want people organising together, so we'll encourage movements like the whole beat up over trans people. You know, you, you think there was one I, on every street corner the way yeah, the news yeah. is... is I, Given was, to it, and it, it's just a beat up to keep people. Part of it is to, to distract, to divide, mm. and to prevent people coalescing together. I I was wondering that about that as well because there's a couple of times I don't think he particularly used the phrase moral panic in the book, but there's certainly some times where he talks about the the things that you know, black people or, you know, people of different races, Chinese, were were accused of, you know, being dissolute and drug addicts and, you know, perverted and all those sort of things. And I guess I just wondered, it feels like there's a, also a sort of a, a, a common tool in that division strategy of, is, is to sort of go for the moral panic. Yeah, I mean, it, it it happens. Yeah, it's again, it's to the advantage of powerful people to keep less powerful people mm. fighting amongst themselves over over issues 
so that they don't band together. And so I've got yeah yeah. So I've got one final question mm. because I feel like this was a book that you were hoping to read because it would talk about a particular issue that you already knew you had strong opinions on. So I'm wondering mm. if what what were the what were the things that where you really found yourself thinking, oh, that's really changed my view of it? Oh, look, to be honest, I don't think it's changed my view on on anything. I found okay. it quite affirming of the things I already <laughs> thought because I've read already a fair bit of Ken and Malik okay. over the years in articles hmm. and books and things. And so I've... And I really can't remember disagreeing with him much on these things. I, I knew where he was going to head with this one. So mm, mm. for me, I was just hoping it would present ideas and concepts and and stuff that I could use in to further the arguments I already had in my head. And I think it's achieved that. So, um, okay. So, yeah, yeah I, it, I can't really... <laughs> There were things that I just didn't quite know and really it probably don't matter that much in terms of how much historically racism really wasn't skin colour based and it was probably wasn't aware as much of that, but it doesn't really matter. It's just not an important issue. It's just mm. interesting. Certainly the stuff about Malcolm X is his change towards the end of his life I wasn't aware of and that was mm, good mm, to understand. Mm. I think he's got a beautiful turn of phrase and a way of saying things like he says here, the question people ask themselves today is not so much in what kind of society do I want to live as who are we? Who are we has become defined less by the kind of society they want to create than by the history and heritage to which supposedly, supposedly they belong. So... Just a good turn of phrase and a good mm. way of saying things, and he's very much a class-based thinker. Like just right at the beginning, let me just find. So he says at the very beginning of the book that he grew up with packy bashing in the UK in the 1970s. Mm. So he was a victim of that racism. The racism drew him into politics but learnt social justice is bigger than racism and a person's skin colour, ethnicity or culture provides no guide as to the validity of their political beliefs. He realised shared values were more important than shared skin colour, hmm. ethnicity or culture. So, so I just find that really spot on and hmm. that, you know, when I'm talking to people in life, I, I just don't care about their fixed characteristics, I'm interested in the things that they decide in terms of ideologies and why mm. they decide them. That's what, that's what interests me. So, so yeah, I'm sort of on board mm. with Ken and Malik so much, so I can't say he... Okay. No. But it's... But it, yeah. I mean, it is nice. It is nice. I, I agree with you on... I'm getting a, a message saying I'm trying to restore the connection, so I don't know I'm still coming through, but it seems to be okay now. I do think it's nice to have someone who's done the research that can kind of confirm all of those things, a bit like you know, reading The Carbon Club and seeing, yeah, okay, there really was this group of people behind the scenes that were doing all of this stuff that 
you know now make sense of what we publicly saw mm. i guess the the how this may it's probably a, a tangent for another day yeah. another I, I, another I, form of class to me is caste and you know in in indian societies but also in arabic and in other what we might call the subcontinent societies there are these very distinct castes which kind of also say you are a laborer or you know you're an untouchable you should never be able to do anything and i really kind of wondered i found myself thinking this I can't remember how I was reminded of it, but it's sort of after I'd finished, you know, thinking that it, you know, for Indian people and for other, you know, other races where there is a lot of different races, uh, there's a lot of different class variety in in terms of their, their money, but also, and he, I mean, even in the, you even see this in, England in upstairs downstairs of that idea that you know if you were born into a peasant family or a servant family the very very best that you could ever hope for is to be the the head of the underservants mm. you know you would never actually you could never even aspire to have property mm. <laughs> yes um, well you couldn't aspire to choose an identity so in sort of the pre-modern world, you, you just your identity was a given, and it was only in the it, w- it was based on the community that you were ensconced in, and you know with the industrial revolution and the breakdown of community, and then with the coming of the Enlightenment, Malik explains for the first time in history, as people became detached from their communities and a and a prescribed identity, they they started to have they the choice of choosing an identity, if okay. you like, that they didn't have before. Is is that a substitute for class then in that struggle? Well, I guess people have taken it that way. That's the hmm. people have forgotten class and have just concentrated on identity. They've they've given up on class. So hmm. but I think it's coming back. I, I think it's I coming back. Yeah, I well, I don't particularly want to eat the rich because they're unusually fatty and probably contains lots of toxins, you know. <laughs> but, but no, you know, the the idea of the far, you know, that we're in late stage capitalism is becoming more and more acknowledged, hmm. and you hmm. know, we're looking at riots in Paris that were quite substantial over the. It's to do with the retirement age being increased, but uh, mm. more and more people are going to return to a class-based fight because it's now becoming obvious that capitalism has reached its late stage and something else is around the corner. So mm. it was hopeless before and people resorted to the sanctuary of a, of a, of a race-based fight but I think people can tell that there's something going to happen. So, mm, mm. Mm. which might be a good place to finish off. Yes, oh, I, on that, I, that, on thank that you note. very much, Trevor, for allowing me to ask you all those questions and interject with opinions of my own. Very good. 
some you can look at the books that you think you might want for next month, Paul. I will look at one that I have a look at I my think list I and see. Suggested one yeah. before and I'm trying to remember what it was. I'll fi- find it if you're willing to give it a go. Well, I'll weigh it up. I'm not going to commit. <laughs> so it is your after all. That's right. Like like a United Nations right of veto, I'll I'll exercise (laughs) as a major power whenever I feel like it. So, all right, dear listener, well, thank you in the chat room for people there who stayed on and listened. Hope you enjoyed that one as something a bit different. I'll be back with Scott and Joe next week with a range of the usual topics. And bye for now. Talk to you later. And it's a good night from him. Yeah, I run fifth and I vibe with love. Oh shit.